Amen. Thank you, Rachel, for that. It's great to have her home from college. And Brother Joe, if we could, I forgot this morning, turn out the choir lights in the back. I appreciate that. Before we look to the text this morning, I just have two brief things to tell you about. If anyone is interested, Brother Chris in the back has Jerusalem artichokes that he can provide you for free if you'd like to plant them in your garden so you can see him after church if you're interested in that. And then next Sunday night at 5.30, we will be having an in-home gathering at Ronnie and Lisa's house in McKinney. So we'll try to remind everybody and announce it again next Sunday. But if you're not going to be here next Sunday morning, but you want to come to that, if you have questions, just ask me or Ronnie and we'll get you the address and the details. But 5.30 p.m. at their house, the food will be provided. We'll have food, fellowship, a little time to sit around and maybe have a devotion and just talk as a church family, get to know one another. So we're definitely looking forward to that and are grateful for them being willing to open up their homes. If anyone has a friend you would like to bring, you're welcome to do that, even if they don't regularly attend here. A lot of the times we see friends like the Saninas and the Santos and other people like that that aren't here all the time that get to make it. So is, if anyone is able, it is Memorial Day weekend. We figured some people may be out of town, but if you're not out of town, then you've got you don't have work the next day, so hopefully you'll be able to come out and join us. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we're going to read just a few verses from Luke 16, then we'll be turning to Matthew chapter 23, and we'll be going through that entire lengthy chapter and considering the subject, characteristics of a Pharisee characteristics of a Pharisee. I'm guessing this will probably be a two-part message, so we'll let the Lord lead this morning and see how far we get. Sometimes I say that and then it ends up being a three or four week message, but that's better than keeping you all day to get to it all at once. I definitely enjoy the format of being able to pick up next week and to continue to go on so that we can really dig into these passages without passing anything over very much. Luke chapter 16, and for now we'll read verses 13 through 17. If I get there myself, Luke chapter 16 and verse number 13. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus had just concluded telling the parable of the unjust steward. And the unjust steward was the story of a man who was going to be fired from his job. And he went out and found people who owed his employer money. And he said, let's cut a deal. If you owe him this much, then write me 50% of it or write me 75% of it. A strategy that bills collectors use sometimes to be able to collect on a small portion of what was owed. He did this not with a good intent, but with the intent that when he got fired from his current employment situation, he would have somewhere to go. Jesus told that story, and then he said that the point of the story in verse number 9 was that you should make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. We've talked through this story before, and I won't go through all of it, but the gist of what Jesus was telling them is that to use mammon, which is the wealth of this world, okay, it's worldly wealth riches and possessions. And Jesus told his disciples, you should use those things in order to advance the kingdom of God. That when you die, there may be people in the kingdom 
that will receive you into everlasting habitations and will be glad that you used of your wealth to influence the kingdom of God. It's not the main story we're getting to this morning. We're going to see the Pharisees' reaction to this story, but it is a great lesson to remember that all that we have belongs to God. And if he leads us to, if we have opportunity to, we can use our giving either in our local church or for worldwide missions or other good causes that lead to the salvation of souls to see the gospel spread and to influence the kingdom of God. God desires us to do that with some of the things that he has given us, but all the while we should have the attitude that all that we have belongs to God. It's not truly our money if we've been born again. It's not truly our house, our possessions, our vehicle, even our children. Though we have been given the responsibility and the stewardship of raising them for the Lord, we know that ultimately they belong to God as well. And if he can use us to take a part of what he has given us and give that out in order to influence eternity, we will have rewards in heaven for that one day. In verse 13, Jesus then says that was the point is we can't serve two masters. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have possessions, to plan for the future, to work hard, to invest. But if that's where our heart is, if that's what we are serving, if we would be unwilling to follow a call of God because it would cost us money, then we are serving mammon. We are serving worldly wealth and we cannot truly serve God at the same time. Verse 14. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. As you study the Gospels and you see the story of Jesus, as he does his miracles, as he saves people's souls, as he tells his parables, and as he preaches his sermons, you will see this little commentary often surrounding all that Jesus did. The Pharisees were listening. The Pharisees and the scribes said this. The Pharisees asked him a question. The Pharisees within their hearts criticized Jesus. You'll see that showing up all throughout the New Testament record. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were an influential sect in Judaism. From what I read this week, they say that the Pharisees were the leaders in the synagogue as you would read that they would make up the elders and the people who would help lead and guide, and some of them would have different roles, the Pharisees were usually made up of middle-class businessmen and leaders of the synagogue. And as you study the Jewish religion and their system that they had at that time, there was all kinds of different splits and roles that people played and different opinions that they had. And you had the, the priest, but then you had the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more of the political type in nature. The scribes had the responsibility of the basic teachings of the Bible and of the keeping of the scripture, while it was usually given to the Pharisees to break down point by point and to argue about and to come up with their opinion of what would be the best way to carry out practically on a day-by-day -day basis the teachings of the scriptures. 
The Pharisees not only taught the scriptures, but as you see throughout the New Testament, they also had added many traditions to scriptures and rituals that were not even in the Bible themselves, but the product of sitting around and arguing about, well, the Bible says this, what would be the best way to carry that out? That is something that every Christian is going to have to do for themselves. And the goal as a church, the goal as Christians, is to get to the place where through wisdom and discernment, we can differentiate between the clear teaching of the Word of God, where the doctrine has been laid out, it's unequivocal, it's clear, and other matters that may fall more into what we would call Christian liberty, where we have to decide for ourselves what God would have us to do, and if that's different from someone else and how they live their life, that we try not to get a heart of judgment looking down on them or to be puffed up with pride and thinking that we are better and that we are more spiritual because we live stricter than they do. I believe that the Bible teaches that the Bible itself is the word of God. It was given by inspiration of God and that all of scripture was not the opinion of man, but rather it is the word of God. I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven and that through his sacrifice on the cross and shedding his blood, we can have forgiveness of sins if we will but repent and go to him and accept the gospel and choose to say yes to Christ. And anyone who teaches a different way of salvation, the Bible says we are to mark them as a heretic. We are to avoid them. We are to rebuke them. But there are a lot of matters that don't fall into that column where I must look at my life and pray and say, God, how would you have me to keep this principle of your word and do that while at the same time not making traditions and personal choices equal with clear doctrine of the word of God. This takes time, spiritual maturity, line by line, teaching, preaching, and studying of the word of God. Well, the Pharisees did not fall on that spectrum of what we would call a little bit more liberal. Rather, they fell all the way on the other end where they were extremely strict. They pushed piety and godliness and strictness. But in so doing, they added many traditions to the Bible that God never taught at all. Some different sects and groups were not as strict as the other, and they would have splits, and that's why there would be lines that would follow one teacher, and they would be a little more loose, and then you would have groups that would be identified with another teacher who was very strict. But these Pharisees in the days of Jesus were extremely strict, and they also were extremely influential and popular with the people. Their opinions carried a lot of weight. And Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 2, it's interesting to remember that of all of the commands in the word of God, of all of even the Old Testament commands that God gave to the nation of Israel, some of which do not carry forward to today, for the Old Testament law was a picture of Christ, but when Christ is come, the picture of him is passed away. It, it, not only that, but the Old Testament law in and of itself was not intended for everyone for all time. Rather, it was for a specific people, for a specific time, for a specific purpose. It was for the nation of Israel until the day that Christ came and did away with it. And it was for the specific purpose of teaching the Jewish nation and all mankind that you cannot come to God through good works. You must come 
through Jesus Christ. Therefore, even what God gave them, before you start to add all of the traditions on top of it, they would have the Old Testament, but then they would have the Mishnah and the Talmud, and they would have a commentary. Then they had a commentary on the commentary, and they piled on rules and regulations high, high, high atop of what even God said in the Old Testament law. But God did not give the Jews the law as a way to keep the law so they could earn their way to heaven. Rather, it was to teach them and all mankind that we are not able to keep the word of God and we are not able to go to heaven through our good works. Therefore, the apostle Paul said, the law was a schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. The law was my teacher to show me that I needed Jesus. Then Paul said, but now that Christ is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So I'm not saying that all of the Old Testament is invalidated or that we don't read from it and learn God's plan. And when God gave the Ten Commandments and when God said how he felt about sins like murder and immorality, that's all accurate. All of the Bible is the word of God. But I'm just saying go home and read through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and a lot of what God told the Jews that they weren't allowed to wear a shirt made out of mixed fibers. They weren't allowed to eat certain types of meat and fish and all that. That's not for us today. And the New Testament specifically throughout Hebrews and a lot of other places, the entire book of Galatians, Paul was writing and correcting them for trying to pull people back into Judaism and look back to the Old Testament law and say either that it was required for salvation or that it was required to be right with God. Acts chapter 15, the exact same thing was happening. There were Judaizers who said, except ye keep the law of Moses and be circumcised, ye cannot be saved. And Peter himself stood up and preached and rebuked that and said, that's false doctrine. That's not true. He said, God has recently appeared to me and showed me that through Cornelius and his desire to be saved, that salvation is not just to the Jews, but it's for all men who would call upon the name of the Lord. And he tells them in Acts chapter 15, what you need to stop doing is taking new Gentile Christian converts and telling them, well, now you're saved, but now you have to start keeping the law of Moses as well. Again, read Leviticus, read the backbreaking amount of weight and rules and regulations. Peter said, your fathers were not able to bear that. Why are you trying to push that upon them? God's word does not require that now that we are saved in this day and age in dispensation, that we have to keep Old Testament law or be pulled back into Judaism. But it's important to remember, I, I'll now read Deuteronomy 4.2. God said, ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Diminishing from what God has said is wrong. We cannot take parts of the Bible out simply because they will offend people. We cannot stop preaching certain truths that we find in the Word of God simply because it's not popular in the culture or it might get our social media account suspended or whatever else is going on in today's day and age. When we take a basic stand upon the truth of the Word of God, a lot of people won't like it. God told them not to diminish from the law, but He also said, ye shall not add to the word which I command you. And adding to what God has said is just as bad as omitting what God has said. And so the Pharisees, in their attempt to be spiritual, they were directly violating the law of God by adding to it. 
What does Jesus have to say to them? Luke chapter 16 and verse 15. Perhaps the most, most scathing rebuke that Jesus gave to any group of people while he was here on this earth was to the Pharisees who to the outside world were the most religious, the most pious, knew the most about the word of God, but their heart was very far from Christ and Christ held them very accountable for their sin. For they had enough light to know he was the Messiah, yet they chose to reject him anyway. Verse 15, and he said unto them, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And that's an important verse to remember that there may be things that among men are highly esteemed that are popular in the world, but that God is displeased with and that God will speak about on judgment day through the story of Lazarus and the rich man, which follows the verses that we're beginning the message with this morning, we learn that this life is not all it is about. And there will be many people who were comforted, who were rich, who were esteemed, who were revered and honored in this life, who on judgment day, Christ will say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. God will say, I never knew you. And there will be people who were hated, who were scoffed at, who were poor, who suffered, but who knew God and chose God. And on that day, things will be different. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Here, we simply think that Jesus is saying that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, were proclaimed until John the Baptist. But then John the Baptist preached that the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, is here and that we can enter into the kingdom of God. And here he says, every man presseth into it, perhaps simply referring to the fact that many people were gladly accepting the kingdom of God and wanting to enter into it, like the publicans and the harlots, but the Pharisees, we're resisting. Jesus said in another place where he was talking about John the Baptist that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violence take it by force. So whatever exactly he meant by this phrase, he's telling the Pharisees through here and other places, many people are gladly entering the kingdom of God, yet you are on the side of those who are pressing into the kingdom of God to make it suffer violence. Verse 17, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass then one tittle of the law to fail, which in the Hebrew writing would be the smallest of markings, like the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. God says that none of it will pass away. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 23, that's the main text that we'll be preaching the rest of these messages from. Matthew chapter 23. Let's look quickly, first of all, at a definition of the word Pharisaism. Pharisaism. Now, in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, there is not the word that we would use today called legalism, but there is the word Pharisaism, and their definitions are pretty much exactly the same. We know that the Pharisees were the leaders of the synagogue, but if you look there at the bottom, the definition of the word Pharisaism is rigid observance of external forms of religion without genuine piety, which is godliness. It's hypocrisy 
in religion. If we were to say today that someone is a legalist, which we preached a series of messages on that before, sometimes you can simply say, well, the Bible clearly says it. I believe it. And people say, well, you're just a judgmental, hateful legalist. But there is such a thing as being a legalist or legalism, wherein we are acting like a Pharisee, and you also could call it Phariseeism. And that would be that rigid observance of the outside, of the external forms of religion, while having a hard heart that does not truly love God and love your neighbor as yourself, as God commanded us to do. Another thing that would make us a Pharisee would be, as I said, adding things to the word of God that are not there, coming up with our own rules, regulations, symptoms, um, principles, even if they're trying to help keep a principle of the word of God, but we elevate it to clear teaching of scripture, then we are guilty of Pharisaism. At the end of Matthew chapter number 22, Jesus asks the Pharisees a question. And all throughout that chapter of Matthew chapter 22, you'll see in verse 15, the Pharisees were taking counsel how they might entangle Jesus in his talk. That was their goal. When they came and asked him a question, it would be like the media today asking a presidential candidate or someone running for office a question. A lot of the time, it's not really a question so that they can know out of curiosity, but rather it's a tough question to see how they will answer it, to see if they can trip them up and make them look bad. And they were often trying to do that with Jesus, but came up short every time. For every word that he spoke was the pure words of God. They didn't trip him up at all. His words were true. His words were righteous. His words were wise. And his words rebuked him, rebuked them. Verse 23, the Sadducees came to ask him a complicated question. Verse 34, the Pharisees regroup and gather, hearing that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence. They come, try to come up with a plan to ask him another question. Jesus deals with that question wisely as well. And then in verse 41, it says that Jesus decides to turn the tables. A wise way of answering questions, if you want to be a good question answerer, is to sometimes reject the premise of the question altogether. A classic example of a gotcha question is you go up to a man and you say, have you stopped beating your wife? If you say, Yes, that means you used to do it. If you say no, it means you used to do it and you're still doing it. So sometimes you have to reject the premise of a loaded question and bring it back to where it needs to be to reset the table so that the debate is where it should be. And one strategy is to answer a question with a question. Jesus did that a lot. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. So Jesus says, as long as I've got you all here and we're doing this question back and forth, let me ask you a question saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now, when he says Christ, he's not asking about himself, Jesus, son of Mary. What he's doing is he's using the term Christ, meaning anointed one, which they would believe is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesies about. He is obviously talking about himself for he was the Messiah, but the Pharisees were rejecting him. And so Jesus is saying, okay, you don't think I'm the Christ, but let me ask you a question about what the Old Testament says about Christ. Whose son is he? And they say, we know that one. We're good at answering these questions. He's the son of David. 
There's a Davidic covenant. That's a whole nother study in the Old Testament. But Jesus said to David, I will establish your throne forever, that through you and through your descendants forever and ever, one of your descendants will sit upon the throne and will rule and reign. We believe that in the genealogies that both Mary and Joseph have their ancestry traced all the way back to King David. It was one of the requirements of being the Messiah. You had to fulfill the requirement that you would be in the family tree of King David. We know the gospel account. We know that Christ was born of a virgin. We believe that. We believe that God was his father, but his mother Mary, his earthly mother Mary, and Joseph, who helped raise him, both had their ancestry go back all the way to King David. You can read that in Matthew chapter 1, I believe, is where it goes all the way through those things, and in one of the other gospels as well. So, they said, we know that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. Verse 43, He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? You see, the Old Testament didn't always specifically spell out exactly how things were going to work. We talked about the last couple of weeks, how the Old Testament said that the Messiah would come. He would be the sacrifice for sins, but also that he would sit upon the throne in Jerusalem, that all nations would be gathered before him, that he would rule and reign forever and ever. But it was all there. And then when Jesus came, he tried to get them to know now I'm going to fulfill the part about being the sacrifice for sins. But after I raise from the dead, I'm going to go back up to unto heaven for an unspecified amount of time. And your focus needs to be on the gospel. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Don't worry about when I'm coming back again to get my church or about when I'm coming back to earth to rule and reign upon this earth. Be focused on the Great Commission. Well, in the Old Testament, there's this verse that throws a wrinkle in their thinking. They said the Messiah will be the son of David. But in Psalm 110, there's a wonderful verse that Jesus quotes there where David calls the Messiah his Lord, his God. And not only that, but it's an Old Testament reference of the Trinity. For David says in Psalm 110 and verse number one, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. Here's what David said. David in the Old Testament said God started speaking. And God spoke to God and said to God, Sit at God's right hand until all of your enemies are crushed under your feet. How could this be? Because there is one God, but it's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus points them to this clear teaching of David to try and get them around to the fact that yes, he would be the son of David, but he also would be the God of David. And in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes and appears to John on the Isle of Patmos, he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. He came from David, but yet David came from him. He came from David in the sense that he was born into David's genealogy on this earth. But David came from him in the sense that Jesus is God, creator of everything. And John 1 says, without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus says, I'll ask you a question and see how you deal with it. Verse 46, 
And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. He did such a good job, they gave up. Well, let's move on now to Matthew chapter 23, which is where the bulk of these messages will come from this morning. All that is a little bit of background to see how that Jesus, before this chapter begins, clearly shows them that he is the Messiah. Then he begins to berate them and rebuke them scathingly for the fact that they were still rejecting him as a Messiah. And he starts to point out all of their flaws and their sins in how they had rejected and perverted the Old Testament law and scriptures that God had given them. Let's go into it here. Matthew chapter 23 and verse number one. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. I knew I was forgetting one thing I wanted to say in way of introduction, which is that this message that Jesus preached was extremely close to when he was crucified. He was nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And in one, one person I saw this week even said this was the last public sermon that Jesus preached before he went to be crucified. Jesus begins by saying this. He reminds the multitude. Now, before I tell you everything that's wrong with the Pharisees, I just want to remind you that they sit in Moses' seat, meaning they have the place of Moses where God gave Moses the law and told him to transmit it to the people. The Pharisees are in charge of the Old Testament law, which is the word of God and always will be, and they have the position of teaching it to you. Therefore, observe and do what they say. For when they speak from the word of God, it's still the word of God, even though the messenger is sinful and is not perfect. From this, we all should be reminded that it's a wonderful thing to have a spiritual influencer in your life. It's a wonderful thing to have a pastor or a teacher or a parent or a mentor in the faith who has discipled you. But just remember that men are not God. Only God is God. Only God is holy. And we should follow God. And sometimes I fear that people are so wrapped up in their respect or admiration of a certain spiritual influencer that when that person falls into sin or fails or quits or is shown to have been a false teacher, they are disheartened and ready to quit also. We need to simply remember that men are all sinful. None of them are perfect. And it's a wonderful thing to have a spiritual influencer that we can follow their leadership. I believe that's in the word of God. But we have to remember that ultimately we are not their disciple. We are the disciples of God. We are to follow him. And the goal should be that our faith would be so strong that even if the most influential person in our life, maybe even someone who pointed us to Christ in the first place, was to renounce their faith and show themselves to have been a false professor of Christ or go into sin or anything else, that though we would grieve and though we would weep as we should, it should not shatter our faith. For our faith is built on Jesus Christ. It's built on the word of God. And this morning, should I ever contradict the word of God, then obey the Bible and disregard what I have to say. For the Bible is the word of God. What we have to say 
is not. He said, so obey what they have to say. When they're teaching you the scripture, remember that it's still the word of God. And sometimes people, as I said, when they get disillusioned by the sins of people that they, they admired, or maybe you grow up and then you get older and start to think things through for yourself, and you see some hypocrisy either in your family or in the place that you were influenced, the danger and the tendency can be, as they say, to throw the baby out with the bathwater, meaning you find some flaws in the people around you, so then you throw out all of Christianity. But what God said is true, whether people fail to live up to it or not. And also to young people, I would remind you, someday you may get a little bit older, look back at your life and identify some failings and hypocrisy in your own actions as well. And I guarantee you at that point, you will hope that people give you grace in the areas that you were not perfect. But maybe you have refused to give that grace to other people who you were so quick to condemn because you identified their flaws. I'm not talking about blind loyalty or leadership. I believe God gave us the Bible. I believe that God gave us a brain and we should evaluate what our family did, what our pastor did, what our church did. We should evaluate it according to the Bible. And if there's things that were not right, we shouldn't be afraid to admit that. If there's things that God wants us to do different, fine. But don't attribute to God the failings of others and don't attribute to yourself the perfection that only God has. But then he tells them after he says to observe their teaching, when they're teaching the word of God, he says, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. It's been said one of the least effective parenting or leadership strategies is the philosophy, well, do what I say, don't do what I do. You can try that. And to some degree, I guess we're all there because we all fail to live up perfectly to be the way that we should. But as children are raised, if their parents act one way and say, well, don't act like I do, just do what I say to do, that ultimately doesn't work. We are influenced more by what we see than what we are told. And our testimony for the Lord is more powerful through our actions than it is through our words. For if we profess that we believe one thing and then we behave in the opposite way, it hurts our testimony. It hurts our opportunity to be an influence for Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples that the Pharisees were doing. They professed piety, but then they did something different altogether. And I believe that Christ has called us as the church and as his people to be a witness to others around us and to try to do that with our words. I believe that God has called us to try and influence people who don't know the Lord for him. We can try to share the gospel with them. If we don't really know what we're doing or we're too shy or it's not the right setting, we, every one of us could give a gospel tract or an invitation to a church event that has scripture on it and say, would you come to church with me? And they can hear about the word of God here. However we do it, whatever strategy, God has called us to try and influence people for the gospel by speaking to them with our words for God about the truth. But he also has called us to live in such a way that our behavior would be a good testimony and that people would observe our good works and that it would influence them to come to Christ. And I don't have the reference here in my notes, but I believe it's in one of Peter's epistles where he teaches that in eternity there will be some people in heaven because they beheld our good works upon this earth and it led them ultimately 
to come to Christ. And some people argue and say, well, I believe we're supposed to proclaim the gospel to every creature. And other people say, well, I believe in lifestyle evangelism. You don't have to talk to people. Just live in a way that's good and clean. And that will, that will point them to, to Christ. To which I would say, we're supposed to do both. We're supposed to use our words. We're supposed to obey the Great Commission. We're supposed to proclaim the gospel. But if then we live opposite to the way the Bible says a Christian could live and we should live, and we do so openly, it hampers and hinders our words that we want to speak. Then Jesus, Jesus breaks into breaking down for the rest of this chapter why they should not follow the works and ways of the Pharisees and what they were doing that was wrong. Verse 4, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Number one, characteristics of a Pharisee. Pharisees are hypocrites. A Pharisee is a hypocrite. We'll talk about when we get down to verse 13 in just a moment, when Jesus begins this series of seven times where he says, woe unto the Pharisees, and then says some specific things that they were doing wrong. He calls them hypocrites. That word for hypocrite down in verse number 13 means a play actor pretending to be what you are not. A hypocrite would be what they would call someone, maybe not even in a negative context, but if they had a play or a production, a hypocrite would simply be an, another word for an actor. He gets up on the stage and acts pretending to be something he really is not. And from thence, we end up with our modern day definition of a hypocrite, which is someone who claims to be something that they really are not. Someone who espouses that you should do something while he himself goes and does the opposite. And what Christ describes here in verse number four is a classic definition of a hypocrite. They are given a great responsibility to be the spiritual leadership over the flock of God. And they say, you need to bear these burdens. We're going to bind them to your back. The picture would be like of a donkey that was bearing a load and you keep putting so much heaviness on its back that it, it literally starts to crumble to the ground. And Jesus said, you're looking to the flock. You're looking to my people and you're taking burdens that are not in the word of God and you're placing them on their backs and they're too heavy for them to bear. But you yourself will not really lift one of your fingers to bear the burdens that you are commanding them to bear. And I know the difference is Old Testament and New Testament. But in First Peter, I believe chapter 5, when Peter is addressing the pastors of the church, he says that they are to be loving. They are to be good examples to the flock. The, the words are escaping me of First Peter 5, not lording, not being lords over God's heritage. And God said to the leaders, leaders of the Old Testament synagogue and also of the New Testament church, your job and responsibility is not to lord over people and be controlling and lay burdens on their back that I did not intend for them to bear. While a lot of the times you yourself are unwilling to do what you are demanding of other people. Number one, Pharisees are hypocrites. Number two, Pharisees have the wrong motive. Verse five, 
but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Before we talk a little bit there about what Jesus was exactly talking about, I would underline or note in my mind that the problems, one of the biggest problems with the Pharisees is that they had the wrong motive. Jesus said in verse five, all their works they do. Why? Why are they doing these things? For to be seen of men. They were not doing it because they loved God with all their heart, mind, and soul. They were not doing it because they loved their neighbor as their self. They were doing it so that they could show off and that other people would think that they were something special. Other people would think that they were spiritual. And that's why they did their good works. Wow, what an empty way to live life to try and impress other people. Some people spend all of their money and money they don't have because they want other people in the neighborhood or their friends to, to think that they're wealthy or to think that they're doing better than they are. But some people live a spiritual life keeping what the word of God has told them to do. They look really good to everyone around them, but God discounts what they are doing because they have the wrong motive and they are doing it to try and impress people rather than out of a heart of love for God. First Corinthians 13, if you wanted to read that chapter this week, would be a wonderful thing to add to your studies where the Apostle Paul says that love, charity, biblical love is what God has called us to. And Paul goes on to describe that the, even if we do all of the works that God has called us to do, if we have not charity... Paul says, it doth profit me nothing. He said, I could take all the money that I have and give it away to a poor person. I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels. I could understand all the prophecies and, myth and mysteries of the Bible, be able to tell, them what, tell you what they are. But if I don't have the love of God in my heart, he says it does profit me nothing. You see, through that text and through the stories of the Pharisees, we absolutely see from the Bible, it not only matters what we do, it matters why we do it. If we are keeping what the Bible says, but we're doing it without love, we're doing it to impress people, we're doing it with a heart that is hard, cold, judgmental, and far from God the Father, not seeking mercy and forgiveness and love like His heart is then it doesn't profit us anything. Matthew chapter 6, I have these verses up on the screen for us. You can turn there if you like. We're just going to read four of them quickly. Jesus actually told them very specifically that we need to be very careful that our good works are not done in public so that we can try to be admired, but rather that we do them in private, not publicly. Matthew 6 and verse number 1. Take heed that you do not your alms, which would be your giving before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your father, which is in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The same thing that Paul said, the same thing that Jesus said in our text in Matthew chapter 23. He's saying there's a way to do good works that comes from the wrong motive, which is to be admired by other people. And if that is our motive... Jesus said, you will have no reward of God. 
God sees what you're doing, even though it's technically a good work, even though it's something his, his word said to do. And he says, I see your heart and I know your heart is not right. Therefore, I discount the good work that you did and no profit or reward will come of it. That's the whole problem with the Pharisees is that they looked good on the outside. They were keeping what the Bible said to do outwardly, but God knew that their heart was cold, was backslidden, was sinful, and was rotten. And in Matthew 23, he gets into a couple examples of that, of how they looked good outwardly, but inwardly, God saw past what was on the outside and said, your heart is not right with me, and I reject your good works. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. How ridiculous, how absurd on its face. But literally, when they came to the temple to give their alms, to give to what would go to the poor, they had someone sounding a trumpet ceremoniously. It's time to do our giving. But why were they doing it? So people would hear the trumpet. So they would look at them so that they would see them bring their giving and say, wow, that guy's really spiritual. He's giving of what he has. How ridiculous. But literally, that's what they were doing. But Jesus said, when you do yours, do it secretly. In the end of verse 2, he says, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. What is he saying? They have their reward, which is the admiration of men, and that is the extent of their reward. That's what you want. You can have it for now, but I will not credit you anything to your account for having done that. You will have no reward from me, God says, and the reward of men's praise will quickly fade away. On judgment day, all will be made public. And people who thought we were so good will see our heart as God saw it. Let us be admonished this morning, church, to see that our heart is right with God. There's so much in this, this chapter that we're barely getting started on this morning. I can't wait to get to all of it. One of the things that Jesus does is he rebukes the Pharisees for doing all of the good works, yet omitting the weightier matters of the law, such as mercy, justice, faith, and love. And he adds the phrase, this ought they to have done, but not to leave the other undone. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to tell us this morning that it doesn't matter how we live. I'm not trying to say, oh, well, we're saved. We're all under grace. It's kind of a waste of time to study the Bible anyway. What does it matter if the Bible says it's a sin? Hey, we're all going to heaven. It's all good. That's not the case that I'm making. Jesus said you should do what the word of God says, but not leave out what is more important, which is a tender heart that is right towards God. And I believe that there could be a Christian saved for 50 years in church every Sunday that to the outside world looks like they have it all together, but their heart may have become backslidden and cold and bitter. And then there may be another person who's a new convert and they've only been coming to church for a little bit. They're still in the process of discipleship and they're still doing some things that probably aren't very wise to do because as, as Pastor Jay said, he said, when I got saved at 17, he said probably about 75% of the sins I was doing, I didn't even know they were sins because no one taught me yet. It takes time. And I believe with all my heart, God may see that person who is still doing some things that are not right, that has a long way to go, but has a heart that is in awe of the fact 
that Jesus Christ died for my sins on the cross and I can go to heaven forever and I have His Word and God can be more pleased with that person than He is with the one who's been saved for decades that is ultimately doing everything outwardly that they're supposed to be doing. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. What a fearful thing it is this morning for me to know that God knows the thoughts of my hearts this week. God knows my motive. He knows that I'm a sinner. He knows that I'm going to fail. He knows I'm not going to be sinlessly perfect, but He does know and He is watching. Therefore, that's why when you really get it sunk into your brain, it's easy to see why we should not be so concerned with the acceptance of people, but rather overcome with the thought that God sees my heart. God knows my motives. God knows my sins. And one day I'm going to give an account to Him for how I served Him as His child. And may we be driven to our knees to try and get our heart right with God and not so worried about what people think about us. Jesus says here, But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Thereby the the principle that we don't want to publish in the church bulletin, who gave what throughout the year. Sometimes we teach on the passages about the Bible and what it has to say about giving. But I try, not that I can't or, 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 or never have, but I try to never look. I really don't even want to know who gives what because I don't want to have that thought in my mind. I want to be focused on the text and what the Bible says, not about who gave what. Because if someone gives a lot, but I happen to know that maybe they're involved in sin that is in the text that God led me to this morning, I don't want to leave out the truth because I'm afraid that I'm going to scare someone who's giving a lot. At the same time, I don't want to discount the needs of someone who doesn't give a lot or give it all at the moment. I'm supposed to love and serve everyone openly. So Jesus said, when you do your giving, don't publish it. Don't put on Facebook how much you gave to charity or or to the Lord's work last year. Do it in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing in the church, in the body. Keep Keep that to yourself. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth thee in secret himself shall reward thee openly. You see what Jesus is saying? When you do good works with the motive of being seen by men, God says, that's all the reward you have. But when you do it secretly for God, not caring who knows anything about it, God sees it. And he says, one day I will reward you for that. Philippians chapter 2 should be the theme of each and every one of us. Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but yet he took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what did he say in Philippians 2? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if Jesus humbled himself, became obedient, sought not his own glory, but the glory of the Father, and trusted the Father with what was to happen, and later God exalted him because of that, that's the mind I'm supposed to have. God, I'm going to do what's right because it's right. I'm going to do what you've called me to do because you've called me to do it. We've talked a lot about the fact that, that they, the people who do the statistics and the studies claim that 80% of the churches in America are in decline, meaning that for five years straight or longer, attendance has continually decreased. And we have to be reminded, I've said, that 
<laughs> you know, our, our goal is not to build a mega church. Our goal is to obey the word of God every day and let God send us who he wants to send us. Jesus said, I will build my church. Our job is to obey. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to work hard. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get creative, update and change and do whatever we think we need to do if it doesn't contradict the word of God and work hard. That's our responsibility. But it's God's job to build the church. And if you're unwilling to serve God because it's not prestigious enough, then your heart's not right with Him. And all over America, there's churches with a handful of people in a community that does not know the Lord. And if men are going to surrender to go to the ministry and families surrender to go and serve the Lord together, then they're going to have to be willing to go somewhere where their sermons might not get seen on YouTube every week and where they're not invited to preach at a big conference, but where they'll go day by day, line upon line, precept upon precept, preach the gospel, proclaim the word of God and labor away in a place where people don't really see or know their name. I believe with all my heart that on the day where we see Jesus Christ, yes, there'll probably be a lot of famous preachers, praise God, who God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But I believe there's also going to be a lot of people who we've never heard of before, who God is going to say, your reward is just as equal to their reward, for you served me and obeyed my word like I said to do. And that's all that I required of you. A missionary on the field. A teenage girl in Afghanistan facing her life being taken away because she professes Jesus Christ. Yes, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven one day that we've never heard of that I know will put me to shame. And that I know will receive full blessing of God for having done His will, not because the results were overflowing and, and wonderful and seen by men, but because they served God from their heart. And in the, the parable of the talents, Jesus was just as pleased. He said in the story that the, the landowner representing God the Father, thereby telling us the Father will be just as pleased with the one who took one talent and turned it into two as He was the one who took five and turned it into ten. God's not so much concerned with quantity, I believe, as he is with quality. And Jesus said, if, if you serve me secretly, I'll reward you openly. And that should certainly be enough for us. He also said, if you're faithful in the little things, sometimes that shows him that you are responsible enough to be faithful, faithful with bigger things. And he will bless you. I've gotten way off track from wherever I was supposed to be. But Jesus said that about giving then in that, I believe in that chapter and we're done. I'm wrapping up right here this morning. If I can tell you two more things and then we're done. He told them fasting. The Pharisees, when they gave, they did it publicly or, or whoever it was here in that chapter. He also said that the Pharisees, when they fasted, they did not wash their face. They didn't comb their hair and they disfigured their faces. What were they doing? They were looking miserable. Sometimes you just can't help it. Sometimes you go out and you feel awful and people are like, what's wrong? You're like, oh, I'm just fighting this thing off. Sometimes you think you feel okay and everybody keeps asking you, what's wrong? You don't look that great. And then you think, well, I thought I was okay, but now I'm a little offended and maybe I am sick and I just didn't know it. But they would go into the marketplace like this. Oh. And people would say, what's the matter? I've been fasting all day. People would say, wow, what a spiritual person. But Jesus said, don't be like that. He said, when you fast, wash your face, comb your hair, do what you usually do and don't tell anybody. Keep it between you and God. 
He said also their prayers. They loved to be seen of men and pray these long rambling prayers so that people would think, wow, you're spiritual. And I don't believe it's wrong to pray in a public setting that for a group of men or Christian ladies to get together or for corporately one to lead us in prayer. But what Jesus then said, addressing that kind of motive, he said, when you pray, go into your closet, close the door. Don't let anybody know that you're spending time in prayer. And then he said, your father, which seeth you pray in secret, will reward you openly. We'll finish by, by closing out the thoughts on Matthew 23 and verse number five, when Jesus said, they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. A phylactery, uh, we have it on the screen, there was a small leather box that would be taken with a strap and they would wrap it up either on their, their forearm or on their forehead and it would have little sections of scripture in it that was to remind them to keep the law. In um, Deuteronomy 6, 8, God was talking about the law and the precepts and he said, place them on your forearm or bind them upon your forehead so that you will remember to keep the word of God. That was probably another thing that they argued about was, I think it was probably, and I, I didn't study this in depth, but my thinking is that it probably was a figurative way of telling them, take the word of God and have it always at your right hand, have it always in your forehead or meaning have it in your heart, know it so that you will obey it. But they took it and made a literal box and walked around town with it strapped to their forehead or their arms so that people would know they were spiritual. Not only did they do that, but what did Jesus said? He said they make broad their phylacteries. They said, well, here's one of those, but that's not big enough. I want an extra, extra large one so that everyone will see it and think that I am so spiritual. And then the borders of their garments. It was talking about how in, in Numbers 15, 38 and 39 and Deuteronomy 22, 12, God said that they were to attach what would be a fringe or a tassel to the four borders of their garments. And it would be another reminder to keep the law of God. What did they do with those? They made their phylacteries bigger and they enlarged the borders of their garments. I need a garment that's wider at the bottom. I need the, the, the tassels to go out farther. Why were they doing that? So that people would look at them and think that they were more spiritual than they were. And God said, you have the wrong motive. We've covered this morning, Pharisees are hypocrites. Pharisees have the wrong motive. Sometimes it's a little disjointed to stop in the middle of where we are. But for this week, may all of us look to our own heart and heed the call to see that we are not serving God from a hypocritical heart with the wrong motive to be seen of men, but that we could say, I will obey God. And if God knows I'm trying to obey him, that's enough for me whatever people think about. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. If Rachel would come, we'll have a time of music here for just a moment. We'll pray for just a brief minute. You can pray where you are or at the altar. We'll have a time of prayer corporately to the Lord this morning, and then we'll be dismissed.